text this morning is Judges chapter 3, verse 31. I invite you to look with me there if you have a Bible as we continue through our series through this fascinating book of the Bible, Judges 3, verse 31. And yes, you heard that right. I am preaching on one little verse here this morning in chapter 3. This is one of the very few times you will ever hear me preach on just one verse. But I think we have good reason for this. We are, of course, going through the book of Judges, and we are going verse by verse, not just judge by judge. But even in this sense, the third judge, Shamgar, only gets this one brief verse. And honestly, as I looked at it, I didn't see him really fitting in with the previous judge, Ehud, even though there's some similarity in the themes there. And he doesn't really fit in with uh, Deborah and, and Barak in the next chapter either. So our options are, okay, we could just mention him in passing, or we could um, you know, skip him altogether, which sadly many, many preachers do. Or we can consider him in full and consider... Uh, what this little verse brings to the overall themes and message of this book, and that's what we're going to do here this morning. But hear me out. I do believe that there is a wealth of truth packed into this little verse. God does not waste words. And I think you'll agree with me once we dive into this and consider it. The third judge, Shamgar, from Judges 3.31. And remember that Christ himself said that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one jot or one tittle of the law to become void. (coughs) Judges 3.31. Let's listen to God speak. After him, after Ehud that is, after him was Shamgar the son of Anath who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Amen. Pray with me again. Our Father, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. So we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit that we might find truth and life and salvation in these brief words. We we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what is it that comes to your mind when you think about the idea of preaching? What does it mean to preach to someone? What am I doing here in this part of our service when I stand up and I preach to you? So often in our day, the idea of preaching chiefly has to do with morality and ethics, with perhaps a little you know, inspiration and motivation sprinkled in there, in accordance with our therapeutic age. But just think of how the term is often used, right? Somebody criticizes us for something we don't like, and what do we respond with? Don't you preach to me. Don't tell me what to do, is the connotation. Don't tell me how to live my life, is how the term is often used and understood. And so even in Christian circles, and even in many uh, Protestant, conservative churches, the Sunday morning service, excuse me, the Sunday morning sermon, the idea of preaching 
often centers chiefly upon moral imperatives and behavioral issues. So often it's a preacher crafting a sermon in order to tell you how to live. You know, whether it's the fundamentalist who's ranting and raving on cultural evils and telling you what to stay away from all the way out there. Or you have maybe the social justice warrior talking about how you need to be feeding the poor, you need to be fighting for racial justice, you need to be caring for the environment. Well, more often in our day, it tends to be the therapeutic. Right? The inspirational, the motivational preaching, right? Here are some four steps this morning on how you can be more productive. Here are ways in which you can be, have better relationships. Right? Whether it's law-heavy in the fundamentalist sense, strict codes of morality, or law-light, which is you know, principles in accordance with um, therapy and, and personal betterment, so often... Preaching in our day centers on the preacher lecturing people on how to live. And so it's no wonder then that we come to this verse, a verse like this, and so many don't know what to do with it. So they just skip it. Think about it. Where is the moral principle in this verse? Where is the character quality? Where is an example to follow? Where is a a principle by which I can employ right here, right now, today, and better my life? We don't really find any of that here. And the temptation for the preacher is to make it all about morality. And the the, the temptation for you, not the audience, but the the, uh, congregation, caught myself there, is to not hear any moral imperatives and to walk away thinking, well, I didn't really get anything out of that. I just got a bunch of information. I mean, just be honest. God's never going to call you to slay 600 of the enemy with an ox goat, right? And so, so many then just read this verse as nothing more than a historical footnote in a historical book and a forgotten kind of line item that is buried under a mountain of so much more important sermon topics. But let me ask you this. What if the reading and preaching of Scripture has a larger goal than just morality and ethics and how we ought to live? What if the ultimate goal in preaching is not just simply to display, to declare what we need to do, but what God Himself has done for us apart from our own efforts? What if the ultimate goal in preaching is not simply to transform us and our character in this moment so you walk away from here with principles that you can put into practice right now, but rather instead to put God's character on display so that our focus being turned upon Him, we are slowly and ever so slightly transformed into His image oftentimes apart from us even realizing it. 
What if the goal in preaching is not simply to tell us about Shamgar or the other characters particular to this narrative, but to rather use Shamgar as a signpost, as a massive billboard with an arrow pointing on it. Christ in this direction. You see, when we view this verse in this way, it comes alive. We have a a bigger goal than just morality, and when we see that, this verse leaps off the page and it shouts the Gospel to us. For when we read the Scriptures through the lens of Christ, we see that there is no wasted word in all of Holy Writ. Every jot and tittle is pregnant with Gospel truth. And God uses even this verse to create, sustain, and strengthen our faith. Which has very practical ramifications then for how we are then to live. So that's what I want you to see here this morning as we consider this one little verse. Pastor, author John Piper has said, books don't change lives, sentences do. I believe he's right. And I believe that before us today is one such sentence that with the blessing of God can do just that. So with this, let's turn to the text. And as we do so, what is the main emphasis? What is the main thing that we should read this and immediately walk away with? What is the first thing that we should see when we read this text? The first thing that should come to our minds. A merciful and mighty God raises up a human champion to save His people. Sound familiar? A merciful and mighty God raises up a human champion to save His people. There's a lot of gospel in that. And that's what we see in verse 31 in this issue, this narrative of Shamgar. But of course, reflecting the pattern that we've seen in Judges, the pattern that we see from Genesis to Revelation, it's not exactly the human champion and deliverer that we might expect. And it's not exactly the kind of deliverance that we might expect because God delights in using what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. And our three points today reflect just that. And they are found in our sermon title. An unlikely judge, an unlikely weapon, and an unlikely salvation. That'll give us a good outline for how we handle this text. An unlikely judge, an unlikely weapon, and an unlikely salvation. So first, an unlikely judge. Again, under the the broader emphasis of God raising up a human champion to deliver His people, here is an unlikely judge. And what I want to focus on here as we begin is what we can derive from this Shamgar from the very, very little that is given to us here about him. Really, what can we derive from his name? We don't have much to work off of, so we don't want to speculate too much. 
But right away we should see that his name suggests that he was not an Israelite. Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. It is foreign. And so perhaps then maybe you see right away why so little information is given about him. The author doesn't spend any time on him. Why? Because here we have the third judge. A deliverer and savior of Israel who's a Gentile. No wonder he gets a a footnote in this book. It's like the author wants to just mention him in passing him and passing and just skip right along. Nothing to see here. (laughs) You did not hear that right. No doubt there is some embarrassment in, in saying and detailing how Israel was dependent upon a foreigner for their deliverance. This is not what we would expect. Israel is saved by a Gentile. However, it gets worse, even from here. Not only is his name foreign, but he is described here as the son of Anath. And this is eye-opening. It's stunning, even, because Anath is a Canaanite sun god. It's a foreign god. Specifically, Anath was a female warrior god, a goddess of war. Archaeologists have recovered arrowheads from this period uh, that date to the early Bronze Age, is the time period we're talking about, with her name inscribed upon them. The speculation is that there was a special class of warriors, a, a, um, you know, a, a group, a battalion, a society of some sorts, um, and she was their patron deity. They fought in her name. They flew... Um, her banner above, you know, in battles, uh, so to speak. And interestingly enough as well, as we've recovered uh, ancient poems and literature from this period, we read about her that she was particularly gruesome and violent and bloodthirsty. And so this fits right in with this account, right? We have 600 Philistines being slain with an ox goad. A little bit of this violent character, right? I mean, we'll, we'll consider it more in a moment, but an ox goad was about eight feet long. It was a stick, had a sharp point on the end. Sometimes that, that point was um, iron. So you can imagine, you know, 600 people being slaughtered with this device. That's pretty bloody. That's pretty violent. You had to be pretty angry to do something like that, right? And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that the author of Judges here is perhaps picking up on an account, uh, maybe a a legend of sorts, true history, but a legend of sorts, of, of Shamgar's exploits. And he's saying, don't be mistaken. The Shamgar goes under the name of Anath. And the Canaanites might attribute his exploits to Anath. But Yahweh is the real actor here. Yahweh is the one who empowered Shamgar, not Anath. One reason I say this, too, is because this inscription here doesn't really make sense. Son of Anath. Anath was female. You would normally say that, which is given some speculation. Okay, maybe, um, you know, maybe there's another explanation for this. 
But I don't believe that to be the case. I think rather instead the writer is saying that Shamgar was a follower or even a worshiper of Anath. For son of Anath could be a figure of speech, referring to one, uh, referring to where his loyalties truly lie. What, what then does this all mean? Can you think of a more unlikely judge of Israel? He's a Gentile. Perhaps, if you accept my argument, we don't know everything, so I want to be careful, but if you do accept my argument, perhaps he's not even a worshiper of Yahweh. And yet God uses him to deliver and to save and to have mercy upon his people. Once again, Yahweh is the true hero of the story in this book. Once again, Yahweh is the one empowering the characters to fulfill what God desires. Once again, God, Yahweh, is exercising judgment and He's showing mercy so that His name and His character might be seen. Here we we must not miss the sovereignty of God in this book. He is sovereign over every detail in this book. He's sovereign over every detail in human history. And this is one of the main themes that the writer wants us to see. God is the one in control over everything. And and this, of course, has great, massive implications for our life because He's sovereign over your life as well. Far more than just putting up a moral example for us to see and follow, here we get a glimpse of the sovereign and merciful character of God. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this, looked in the context of your life here and now, changes everything. Of course, though, while God's character is undoubtedly on display here. There's always a flip side, isn't there? Whenever God's nature is exalted, you know, like, like a diamond that's, that's upheld against a black felt, right? The darkness of human sinfulness is brought out by contrast as well. And so while God does use Shamgar to deliver His people, this is yet another sad commentary on the state of Israel at that time. Shamgar, a pagan Gentile, is raised up to deliver Israel, which demonstrates the absolute famine of leadership within the nation at that time. There's no king in Israel. There's no one who is fit to lead. Israel fell so far and so fast that there isn't a man to be found who is faithful. And so God has to use pagans, Gentiles, to accomplish His purposes. Shamgar is an unlikely judge. But this then leads very naturally to our second point, which is an unlikely weapon. An unlikely weapon. Next thing we're told about this Gentile is that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. I mentioned before, an ox goad was about, it was a stick, about eight feet long. 
At one end, it had an iron tip or some sort of sharp point, and that was used to prod cattle along, right, to get them to go the right direction. It was used for herding. On the other end, it had a spade, which was used for shoveling manure. So naturally then, this is a very unlikely weapon, excuse me, unlikely tool to be used as a weapon in war. It was really nothing but a stick. A glorified stick. I mean, we're, we're not talking about, you know, the, the infinity gauntlet from the Avengers, right? The glove that holds ultimate power. This was a common, ordinary household tool. In battle, it was like bringing a knife to a gunfight. And yet, in the hands of God, even a stick holds ultimate advantage. This, of course, plays into the larger theme in this book, where God uses many strange people, but also many strange instruments to deliver His people. We saw it two weeks ago with Ehud. A custom-fitted dagger, right, of unusual size. Next week, we'll see Jael and the, the hammer and tent peg. Then we'll see Gideon's horns and torches in chapter 7. Then we'll see Samson kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, of all things. What these things show us is that God delights to use people and even instruments that we would never imagine. That's part of the theme in this book. He uses things that are weak and useless in the eyes of the world. But when wielded by God, they are used with great power for the salvation of His people. And again, this demonstrates how the Lord is the one in control. It's not the strength of man. It's not the power of the horse. It's not the fitness of the weapon that ultimately matters. Salvation is of the Lord. And He chooses whatever means He pleases to accomplish His purposes so that the glory is not in the man and the glory is not in the weapon. There is no boasting in that. The glory is in the Lord. However, if we think about this a little further, there's a little more we learn about Shamgar from this weapon. Without a doubt, it seems to imply that Shamgar, far from being fit for battle, was probably cut out for a very different life. Who is it that carries an ox goad? A shepherd. There's no other reason you'd be carrying an ox goad unless you're herding cattle. So again, in the eyes of the world, the shepherd is not one cut out for battle. Shepherds are not trained warriors. What good can a shepherd be when the shooting starts? And yet God uses a lowly shepherd to defeat a mighty people. I hope at this point you're beginning to see some parallels with this story and other accounts in Scripture. It's been a few weeks since I mentioned this. Let me remind you that one of the main purposes of this book, it was a book written in the time of the monarchy, like First and Second Samuel period in Israel. And the big dispute in that time was what? The monarchy itself. 
whether Saul or David was the rightful heir to the throne. Judges is writing in this period, picking up on this theme, and we see a very pro-Judah emphasis in this book. Beginning with the very first verse, Who shall go up for us? They asked the Lord. The Lord responds, Judah shall go up first. So part of the apology of the book, right? The, the thesis is that the ruler of God's people is to come from Judah, like David, instead of another tribe like Benjamin, like Saul. And that's exactly what we see here. David was a simple, humble shepherd, weak in the eyes of the world. But the prophet Samuel looks upon him and he says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Recall then as well that David takes an unlikely weapon. A slingshot. A sling, more specifically. A tool that he used what? For caring for his sheep. Like an ox goad. Recall then as well how Goliath was a Philistine. He was that imposing figure, that enemy of God and Israel that no man dared to challenge. There was a great disadvantage. Maybe not 600 to 1, but he was a giant. And yet David isn't frightened. In the eyes of the world, no man could defeat such a giant, but David looks upon him and all he sees as he describes as this uncircumcised, filthy Gentile, this Philistine who's mocking God's people, he sees that Goliath is nothing in comparison to the Lord. And so by the hand of a small shepherd boy using an unlikely weapon, the Lord grants victory to Israel, to David, and they are saved from their enemies, the Philistines, and thus, what I want you to see here is that Shamgar is a foreshadowing of this event. And we, we must learn to read Scripture in this way. I've already made the argument not just to read Scripture and look for principles to, to follow, but to read it as one book, to read it as an account of God's mighty acts, as one story. And so when we do that, we see that this account foreshadows David so that we understand that David is the Lord's anointed, that David is a fit leader over the people of Israel, which then, of course, leads us to the very natural conclusion and consistent conclusion from there that we must look to the greater David as well. The other one from the tribe of Judah, the greater shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, an unlikely judge and an unlikely weapon, which far from being abnormal, is actually par for the course in God's marvelous plan of redemption. This is a common way in which He delivers His people. But that then brings us to our third and final consideration this morning, where we will bring this all together, and that is an unlikely salvation. The official battle report, of course, is extremely brief. No details are given except 600 Philistines dead. And Israel is saved. We're not told anything about the battle. 
How was it that one man was able to kill so many people? We do know the Philistines were a coastal people, and they came into the land of Israel on raids, and they would come in and take everything. They would pillage the land. So they would take your produce, your livestock, your wives, your children. Um, but they were also known as well to take your weapons um, and anything that might be used for a weapon. Uh, so, which is why probably that you know the only thing around that Shamgar could fight with would be an ox goat because they had already raided all the weapons. So perhaps we can maybe surmise that you know being land raiders and coming in, perhaps they are happened to be encamped in a confined area where they couldn't escape, and maybe they were asleep or groggy or whatever when Shamgar caught them by surprise and slaughtered so many. We don't know specifically, but what we do know clearly is that this is a superhuman accomplishment. Even given the perfect circumstances, it is nearly impossible for a regular human being to kill 600 people all at once. But 600 soldiers, in this sense, was common in that day as, as kind of an organized force under, under one commander, like a battalion, in a sense. And so the, the unlikely salvation is that one man defeats an entire battalion, to use today's terminology. It's pretty unlikely. Think about this in the sense of how humiliating it must have been for the Philistines. An entire regiment is wiped out with a shepherd using a shepherd's tool. Talk about embarrassing. The point is that, just like we considered two weeks ago with a fat king, Eglon, the writer is depicting Israel's enemies as looking utterly ridiculous. Pathetic in every sense. And remember, this highlights how Israel was only in this position because of their sin. It wasn't the strength of the enemy. It wasn't their lack of resources or power. It was their sin. Their disobedience, their covenant breaking, is why God strengthened the enemies around them. They were only in that position because God was punishing them for their sin. And thus, when God decides to deliver, one man can defeat an entire battalion. This then ought to serve Israel. Serve to, uh, to declare to them, to call them, to turn from their sin and trust in the Lord. To get their eyes off their enemies and their felt needs, their problems, and to focus on the Lord. The author and finisher of their faith. And of course, the message is the same here for us today as well. This is a story that ought to teach us how our enemies of sin and Satan and the flesh are no match for the Lord and His power. This is a story that ought to teach us that God doesn't use the perfect, the conventional, what is wise and mighty in the eyes of the world, but He delights to use the weak and the simple and the worthless, to shame the wise, to demonstrate His power so that we boast only in the Lord. And what this means is that He can use you as well. 
He can use you even in your sin, even in your weakness, even, oh, I don't have the right training. I don't have the right equipment. I don't have the right upbringing, the right education. This story ought to give you great hope that He delights in using the weak and the faulty for His purposes. This is a story that ought to give you great hope in the midst of difficulty as well. You might be sitting here wondering, how in the world is the Lord going to fix my situation? How in the world is this gigantic, unassailable sin in my life ever going to be defeated? How in the world am I ever going to live a life pleasing to God? I don't have the training, the upbringing, the resources, the tools. But God also calls you to simply see and acknowledge your sin, your dependence upon Him, your weakness, and to fix your eyes upon Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. His power is made perfect, not in your strength or your aptness, your fitness, but in your weakness. When you are weak, He is strong. And this is where the Gospel comes into this passage. Jesus Christ is that greater Shamgar. He is the greater Shamgar, but He is also the greater David, the one whom Shamgar foreshadowed. He is the greater Shepherd. Jesus Christ is that unlikely Savior. A carpenter from the backwater village of Nazareth. Jesus Christ is that human champion that God raised up seemingly out of nowhere and He sent Him into battle to fight in our place when the odds were stacked against us. Jesus Christ is also the one like Shamgar who acted alone. Single-handedly. We read here that Shamgar acted single-handedly to bring salvation to many. He saved Israel. Romans 5.19 tells us that by one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous. Jesus took on sin and Satan and even death itself. And he fully secured this unlikely salvation single-handedly for the salvation of his people. And just like Shamgar and David, the instrument of Christ's victory is the most unlikely of all. The cross. An instrument of shame and death, and humiliation. A tool that was used for suffering and pain and making a public spectacle out of shame and misery and death. No one would ever think to use a cross as an instrument of salvation. And yet it's here at the cross where everything comes into place. 
where everything finds its connection in the Gospel. Jesus was not a Gentile idolater like Shamgar, nor was He a sinner, an adulterer, and a murderer like David. He was the sinless and perfect Son of God. And yet, on the cross, He became an idolater. He became an adulterer. He became a murderer. Because He became sin on our behalf. He took the judgment of God that we deserve and bore it in His body, in our place, so that we might be saved. Single-handedly, not only defeats our enemies, but also saves His people by taking the judgment we deserve upon Himself. And that, brethren, changes everything. Your sin, your struggles, your imperfections, your doubts were placed upon Christ. And He bore them on that tree so that you might be saved. This is the Gospel. And this is what Shamgar in this one little verse buried in the book of Judges foreshadows, anticipates, and should be a bright flashing sign declaring to us, look forward to Christ and Him crucified for your salvation as well. You see, it's true. Books don't change lives. Sentences do. And the sentence that changes everything is that for our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This passage proclaims your Savior and your salvation if you are trusting in Christ today. This passage changes everything when we look at it through the lens of Christ. Well, may God use His Word to work in us true faith and repentance in our hearts even today. Let's pray.